And if you would join me in God's Word in Romans chapter 4, Romans chapter 4, I would like to introduce this time in our worship to the first 12 verses of this chapter, Romans chapter 4. Paul writes, what then shall we say that Abraham our father according to the flesh has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Verse 7, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Is this blessing then on the circumcised? Or on the uncircumcised also. For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised. So that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised that righteousness might be credited to them. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father, which he had while uncircumcised. Father in heaven, we again come before you in prayer, kneeling our hearts before your throne of grace to receive help and mercy from you. That's what you promised to do for your people. And we appeal to you for that kind of help and mercy as we dip into your word with worshipful and humble hearts, ready to receive truth from you. And we pray in this way so that we're not only receiving knowledge for our minds, but we're receiving transforming work that affects our heart and affects our life as well. In other words, we come to this hour of worship where we come under the authority of your word, not only to learn from you, but to be transformed by you because we've come under the authority of the voice of our God. Help me in the proclamation of that word, but help us all as we hear, as we learn, and as we listen to the voice of God that we might kneel and yield to your presence and your purposes. I pray that you would again minister to the hearts that have heavy burdens here this morning. But Father, we're all burdened with sin. We're all burdened with the imperfections and the darkness of the world around us, as well as our own struggle with lust and deception. Lead us then in truth. Lead us in such a way that we shine brighter as lights of Christ as we leave the doors this morning and go back out into a world that we have been called to shed light on. We need your enabling grace for that. And therefore, we pray for this hour that you will have your transforming work on our hearts. Sanctify us according to the likeness of Christ. Grow us in the image that belongs to your Son. And fill us with a greater zeal, a greater passion, and a greater boldness to represent Christ out in the world. And we pray this in his name. Amen. <clears throat> in praying this way, I recognize that since the inception of the church, there have been attacks against the cause of Christ. And we know that these attacks come from many directions. Science or the scientific world has attacked creation, not only creationism, but the God that created. We see attacks against the cause of Christ against life that God is the author of. And this attack comes in this, this uh, trend we have in our nation to kill the unborn and all apparently for the right to choose. Not the right of the infant to choose, but the right of somebody to choose where God is the author of life. We are seeing the attack against the cause of Christ 
even today in human sexuality, where God made male and female, our world is determining something else. We see the attack against worship as government enacts laws that oppose what God teaches us to do as we gather and we praise Him and we serve together. We see attacks against the family that God has ordained. Culture is redefining family. And individuals, even within families, are abusing and making it their own empire, that which is God's. We see attacks against holiness and righteousness. Man is deciding what should be right and wrong. Man is deciding good and evil, which has become very subjective rather than that which is divinely ordained or divinely ordered. But I say all of this recognizing that by far the greater attack against the cause of Christ has come from within the church. It comes from those that claim to be Christian. It comes from those who claim to be religious. It comes from those that claim to be serving God or coming on behalf of God or in the name of God. It comes from those that even quote the word of God. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul has faced in the entire ministry he had in evangelizing the Asia Minor world, raising up churches, and then ministering to those churches that were coming, from, uh, coming under attacks from within. Those that had entered into the church circles and claimed to be following God, zealous for God, or even being Christians themselves. And what Paul is dealing with here in instructing the church of Rome is the attack against one of the most critical doctrines of the gospel itself, and that is justification by faith alone. We've seen that in our study of the first three chapters. Paul is picking up on dealing with that issue, that doctrinal issue that is so critical to the cross of Christ and the gospel message that he's not going to let it go. And now his argument, his apologetic response is going to bring examples from the Old Testament, namely Abraham and David. But just as important as bringing those examples into this argument or this discussion will be Paul's referencing of the Old Testament scriptures. In other words, back in the Old Covenant, thus saith the Lord. And I trust that we're going to see that as Paul builds his argument for justification by faith alone in that the salvation of God has always been, from start to finish, it has always been a work of his grace. It has been a work of God's grace back in the Old Testament even as much as it is today in the church age. And Paul has already laid the groundwork for this in saying that all of us are sinners. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all missed the mark, both Jew and Gentile. And he's made the point that whether or not you are Jew or Gentile, whether you're a sinner of the old covenant or a sinner of the new covenant, whether Jewish sinner or Gentile sinner, whether you're circumcised or not, whether we're talking about law-keeping or keeping the law that is written on our hearts, we are all in need of a Savior. As we move into chapter 4 of our study of the book of Romans, Paul continues to make his case for justification by faith apart from works. But here he wants to show that the Old Testament believers were not simply told that this view of salvation is coming Rather, this has always been the way God saves sinners. And therefore, the promise of God in sending Messiah was not to initiate an entirely different way of rescuing man from sin and judgment. Rather, Messiah's coming would make possible the only way to save sinners, both then and now, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament economy. In other words, it must be a work of God's unchanging grace. My hope this morning is to lay down a basic foundation from just the first three verses of chapter 4 
a foundation for where I believe Paul is going to be taking us in the rest of chapter 4 and into chapter 5. Two Old Testament characters are used initially by Paul and predominantly one, and that is Abraham. David is used almost as a support to what he's going to use Abraham to, to be as an example for justification by faith alone. But also consistent with Paul's apologetic style in this letter is that he's going to rest his argument, as I said before, on the Old Testament scripture. God has already declared justification by faith alone. And this affirms that Old and New Testament alike stand in perfect agreement in regard to the salvation of sinners. Chapter before, it begins with a question and with these two words, what then? What then? Which picks up on Paul's previous discussion where Paul left off in the reality that Jew and Gentile alike are both under the condemnation of sin. He had made the case that being born Jewish or possessing the law of Moses or even doing one's best to keep that law is insufficient. It is not enough to justify sinners before God. So neither man's best efforts nor his heritage could adequately deal with this sinful condition. Now this does not, as we've already learned, make the law of no value. Rather, it, it, it reveals the true purpose of the law. The law was given, remember, to expose the sins of man. Man's sinful depravity is exposed by the law. And man's inability to achieve God's perfect righteousness. Man has no ability to achieve that standard of holiness that God requires so that we might stand justified before him. This is what the law proved. No man is able to keep the law, and Paul is going to show not even Abraham. So to make this case clearly visible to his readers, Paul brings in evidence from the Old Testament history. You can almost envision this like a courtroom. And Paul is going to bring in a witness. And that witness this morning is Abraham. This will be a powerful exhibition that he offers to his Jewish readers or the Jewish citizens there in Rome in regard to the father of their own nation, who the Jews would regard the father of the religion itself, the Hebrew faith. So Paul in verse 1 brings us back to the beginning, taking us back into the Old Testament, into the book of Genesis. He does this in question form, you'll notice in verse 1, prompting his readers to consider the doctrine of justification of faith apart from works of the law. And he brings in this argument from Old Testament history all the way back to Israel's roots in Abraham by asking, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to flesh, has found? What did Abraham find in himself, in God? Abraham is now to be considered as historical evidence that the works of the law cannot provide justification from sin. And as Paul already said, and if you look back at chapter 3 and verse 28, he concluded this, we maintain this, that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Now he's going to bring in the evidence. Now he's going to bring in an example that comes right out of the Old Testament that the Jews would have considered authoritative, inspired word of God. After the fall of man into sin, God made a declaration that through the seed of the woman, he, God, would wound the head of the serpent who brought sin into creation by the serpent's deception and enticement. But it's not until Genesis 15 that God reveals his intention to accomplish man's salvation through the lineage of an old, childless man named Abram, later to be called Abraham. Previously, in Genesis chapter 12, remember that God had called Abraham out of his pagan, idolatrous culture to enjoy the blessing of God's provision and God's salvation. And he promised Abraham that through him, all the families of the earth would be blessed. That's Genesis 12, verse 3. That promise is later revealed to Abraham as God's plan 
of bringing salvation to the nations of the world through a son that would be miraculously given to Sarah and Abraham. Abraham would not only be the father of the nation of Israel then, but God said you will be the father of a multitude of nations. Genesis chapter 17 and verse 4. This was a reference to God bringing in the Messiah through Abraham's lineage and that God would bring that Messiah's salvation to the nation of Israel and even beyond to the pagan nations. God had a significant role for Abraham to fulfill then on behalf of Israel and on behalf of all who God would be pleased to save from out of the world. And this is why God said to Abraham, I have made you, I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. But the point that Paul was making here in Romans 4 is that the Old Testament scripture affirms it. He's not just bringing in an historical character. He's quoting the word of God that the Jew would have had to pay attention to. And the reason that Paul uses Abraham as a critical piece of evidence for justification by faith apart from works is that the Jews highly regarded this Old Testament patriarch as the founding father of their faith. He was, in essence, the George Washington of the Hebrew people. And as Paul wrote in verse 1, Abraham was our forefather, according to Paul recognizes, even of himself as a Jewish man, Abraham was our forefather according to the flesh. Paul himself was born into this lineage. The whole Hebrew nation began with Abraham. He was their physical lineage. If justification by faith was said of this man, as was declared back in Genesis 15, and we're going to see further in just a moment, then Paul's preaching of the gospel was nothing new. It was preached back in Genesis. This gospel doctrine existed all the way back to the beginning of the Hebrew people. And this is another reason Paul offers Abraham as evidence of justification apart from the works of the law. He takes this argument back to a time in Israel roots that preceded the law and even when Abraham would later become circumcised. God made this declaration of Abraham, Paul writes. He, Abraham, believed in God and he, God, reckoned it to him as righteousness. This was before Abraham was instructed to be circumcised. And it was over 600 years later that the law of Moses would even be introduced into the Hebrew people. And so the point should be obvious to those who might have claimed that the law keeping is going to justify sinners. Abraham was declared righteous not by his own merits at keeping God's law since it wasn't even in existence at that time. He was declared justified by faith in God's promise to provide a salvation that was yet to come. And this brings us to verse 2 where Paul says there can be no boasting then before God. We can't boast in our works. We can't boast in our righteousness. We can't boast that we somehow can save or contribute to Or add to God declaring us just. So the truth is further established in verse 2 where two opposing statements are made by Paul. The first is, for if Abraham was justified by works, he knows this is not true. But he makes the statement anyway because this is what the Jews believe. If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to brag about. Something to boast about. But then the second and opposing statement but not before God. He could not make that claim before God. The Jews claim that Abraham kept the law that he did not have was really the basis for them claiming that they could keep the law, that they could possess the law, that they could be born out of the roots of Abraham and therefore be part of the kingdom of God. Two quotes I want to offer from Jewish writers confirming what the Jews thought of Abraham. One writer says, we find that Abraham, our father, had performed the whole law before it was even given. And a second quote, Abraham was perfect in all of his deeds with the Lord. That's how the Jew, the Hebrew people, saw Abraham. 
And that's how they excuse that he was justified in Genesis 15, 600 years before the law was even given. He was already keeping the law, they would say. And he kept it perfectly. That's how the Hebrew people viewed Abraham. And they used Abraham as an example. Therefore, we keep the law and therefore we are justified by our own merits. Paul affirms that if this were possible, Abraham would have something to boast about. You might say he'd have bragging rights on keeping the law that he didn't even have in his possession. The problem that Paul points out is that Abraham could not do so before God because no man is able to obey God according to God's standards of righteousness. And if we cannot meet God's standards of righteousness, we only, not only have no right to boast before God, we have no right to boast to anybody of ourselves. This Hebrew example is important to us as Gentiles because this shows us that when God gave his specific law to a specific people and they couldn't keep it, how are we supposed to be justified by keeping a law that's written on our hearts that isn't even the law of God? This is essential doctrinal truth for us. And it's why Paul took the Hebrew people as well as the Gentile back to the Old Testament scripture in chapter 3, verse 10 to verse 12. Reminding that in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, God declared there is none righteous, not even one. There's not any seeking after God. There is no one that understands God. No one that understands God's salvation. All have turned aside. Together they become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. That should have been clear to the Hebrew people. This Old Testament assessment of humanity includes Abraham. Abraham was one of those that was not righteous. He'd gone his own way. There was no bit of good in him. There was not one individual, not Abraham, not Moses, not David, not Elijah, None had done good. For Paul to write that Abraham could never boast of keeping the law perfectly before God is simply a direct quotation from the Old Testament scripture that the Jews would have to acknowledge. And if no man is able to make such a boast before God, there is no way that one can claim to be justified by their own works. When verse 2 reads, but not before God, that is an emphatic statement that is meant to highlight the holiness of God's character. As we studied in chapter 3, in verse 23, all of us have sinned and we fall short of the mark of that holiness. We just don't live up to the standard of God's righteousness. That includes Abraham, Moses, David, and every other notable saint named in the Old Testament scripture. And it's the Old Testament scripture that proclaims this. Therefore, it would be impossible to claim that Abraham was justified by works, not only because he did not have the law to live by, but more importantly, he did not have the ability to live by it if he was given the law. And therefore, in Genesis 15, right at the very beginning, God is showing us man has no ability to boast in their own works. Look at Abraham. He was declared righteous by God because he, Abraham, put his faith in a salvation that he did not even clearly see. But he embraced the promise of God to save. And God says in response, I will credit to his account my own righteousness because he has none of his own. This doctrinal reasoning is most certainly implied by the greater context that Paul writes in in chapter 3 and chapter 4, but it is also implied by the greater context of the whole of God's word as Paul wrote back in chapter 3, quoting from the Old Testament Psalms and taking us back to this Old Testament patriarch where God in his word declared this man justified, not by works, but because of faith. And this brings us to verse 3 where Paul advances the reality that none of us are justified or saved by belief or by behavior, but rather by belief. It is by faith and not by works. 
Paul has another way of answering the false claim that Abraham was justified by his law keeping. In verse 3, the example of Abraham testifies to the gospel that sinners are justified by belief and not by one's behavior or their works. And he quotes here from Genesis chapter 15 verse 6 which says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now that statement about the Jewish forefather followed God's promise to Abraham that he would give to this man a son of his own. Because both Abraham and Sarah both were older, well beyond the years of having children. And we understand that was by God's providence. God made Sarah to be barren. Both of them to be childless. So that he would show forth his own power and glory. Salvation would be only of his grace. And therefore a miracle child was granted to this older couple who were well beyond the years of even possibly having children. God made that promise to Abraham, out of you is going to come a great nation, and all of the nations of the earth are going to be blessed, Abraham, because I'm going to give to you a child. With these thoughts swirling around Abraham's mind, he asked the Lord, how, how can this be? I can't have kids. Sarah can't have kids. We're beyond those years. And the custom of his day was that if he, the patriarch, couldn't have children, then the firstborn in his household would then become the heir. That means that one of Abraham's servants who had a child, that child would become the heir. And so uh, Abraham names that. Is, is this man going to provide the heir then? Is this the person? But God told him that his son would not come from those means but that God would give him a son from Abraham's own body. That's why Paul mentions the flesh in chapter 4, verse 1. God would give to Abraham and Sarah a child of their own. And then we read of Abraham. After he hears this promise, Abraham believed in the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. Behind that promise to give to Abraham and Sarah a son, a child of their own, was that God would provide a lengthy family tree out of which the Messiah would be born. And that Messiah would do the saving work for God's people that no sinner is able to accomplish. He, Messiah, would perfectly keep the laws of God. He, Messiah, would bear the sins of his people on himself and take the judgment that those sins deserved. He would surrender, Messiah would his own life, to make full payment for sin. So that all who believe in the work of that Messiah, the work of the Lord, before and after Messiah's suffering, they would become the children of God. And this is how Abraham would be the father of us all, even those of us here this morning that are believers. He's my father too. God decreed it so. God worked his grace through this man there was a sinner and in need of justification. God made Father Abraham a man over a multitude of nations. However, the point that Paul wanted to emphasize here is that Abraham was not declared to be justified by his works of the law or by any other works that Abraham could produce. He believed God and God credited his own righteousness to Abraham's account. And as Paul wrote, and we're going to see this in just a moment in Philippians chapter 3, this was not a righteousness that belonged to Abraham. It was a righteousness of God's bestowed upon this man because of his faith. And therefore Abraham was justified because he believed in the promise of God to save him. He did not fully know how that would happen. He did not understand the Messiah would come of virgin birth. Or that he would die on a cross and bear the sins on Calvary for Abraham. He didn't understand all of that, but he believed God. That God would provide that salvation. That God would fulfill his promise. And this Old Testament proof of justification by faith alone that Paul presents is to the believers there in Rome saying to them, look, we were saved the same way back then that we are today. 
Abraham was not, nor could he be justified by his own works. And in truth, when Abraham believed God, he was expressing his faith in Jesus Christ. He was expressing his faith in the Savior that God would one day send through his lineage, even though he knew nothing of the name of Jesus. R.C. Sproul writes, When Paul speaks of Abraham's justification as being by faith, that is shorthand for saying that Abraham was justified by the righteousness of Christ. So we ask, how was Abraham saved? He was saved by putting his faith in Jesus Christ as his Savior, even though he didn't even know of Jesus. He just knew the promise of God. And he rested there. Abraham had put his faith in the cross of Jesus Christ. He was not resting on his own merits. The merits of God's perfect son is where his faith was placed. And his atoning sacrifice for the sins of his people. Abraham was one of those that was saved by faith. What this introduces us to in chapter 4 is that God grants salvation freely by his gracious work on the cross. And faith is the means or the instrument whereby we are given that free gift of salvation. What Paul is strongly advocating for in this part of his letter is that sinners are justified by faith apart from works, especially the works of the law that God had given to his chosen people. He proves this through a proper understanding of Scripture and by the examples that God gives to us in his written word. And this shows us that this doctrinal truth, justification apart from faith, or apart from works, is how God has always saved sinners. It is by his gracious work, not man's, and it is through faith in the promise of God. Now I want to point out that my sermon here is much shorter and my conclusion is much larger because I want to touch on some controversies that we must deal with in regard to the justification of faith and not only dealing with those controversies but the practical application of them. These are practical truths for us to live by. I've only taken on three verses this morning in order to leave room for us to consider these controversies that have these practical implications. What Paul was teaching to the church then would have raised eyebrows, especially among the Jewish people, and most certainly even some Jews that had come to faith in Christ. So Paul uses question and answers through chapter 2, 3, and here in chapter 4. He brings questions to probe the minds, to probe the, the intellect and the thought processes. What do you believe here? What do you understand? Because this is what the Word of God teaches. The questions and answers that Paul presents here were meant to address actual concerns the gospel preaching raised as he traveled around Asia Minor proclaiming the cross of Christ. And yet in answering the concerns of his day, the doctrines taught then are equally important today and address many of the issues that we must deal with in the church. So I want to give us three to consider this morning just evaluating these first three verses that are introducing us to where Paul is going to take us, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. First, and if you're into filling in the blanks, I'm going to go carefully and I'm going to repeat here. Faith is the means, the means of justification, not a merit that justifies. Faith is the means or you could say the instrument of justification, not a merit or a work that justifies. And this is where we take seriously what verse 2 is declaring out of Romans 4. Paul takes on the false assumption the Jews would have made of Abraham as well as of their own efforts to keep the law. If it were possible for Abraham to be justified by his own works, then he'd have something to boast about. And if it were true, then the Jews themselves would have something to boast about in their own keeping of the law. Paul will bring up the fact that the law was not even around at this time. He'll bring it up later. Abraham was not yet even instructed to be circumcised, which he's also going to bring up in chapter 4. 
But even that is not the main problem. It's not the main problem that Abraham didn't even have the law. The if in verse 2, notice the if in verse 2, highlights the impossibility of man in keeping the law that God gives to God's satisfaction. We have none of us the ability to keep God's laws to God's satisfaction. Sinful man just has not the ability to obey God as God requires. And this prefaces in verse 2, it prefaces what verse 3 declares about our salvation. Abraham then believed God. It's not going to come by works. It's going to have to come by faith. Because his works won't justify. Abraham's faith was the means then by which God credited to his account the righteousness that Abraham couldn't accomplish on his own. Faith is the means. It is the instrument. In other words, Abraham's faith did not save him. God saved him by his gracious work of justification, a work that would come later when Messiah would give his life for his people. What saves us? It is not our faith. It is the cross of Christ. He did the work for us none of us could do. Faith is merely the means or the instrument that brings that gift to us, that gift of salvation. If this were not the case, then Abraham's faith would have been a work that he accomplished that earned him the right to be justified by God. In truth, what saved Abraham was the sacrificial atoning of Jesus Christ on the cross, even though Abraham did not know of it. He knew only the promise of God to save him through his lineage. Faith was the means by which that saving work was applied to his sins and ours. It is because of Calvary that a believer is declared justified by God. A controversy that may arise out of this truth is that some might argue that to have faith in the cross of Christ is a good thing. Is it not good to believe? In fact, it's an obedient response to God's call that all men repent and believe in the sacrifice of his son. But as chapter 3 has already declared, not one of us are good. Not a single one of us has done what is right in the eyes of God. None of us have sought after God. None of us have even understood that we might believe. So we cannot look at faith as a good work that we accomplish that entitles us or that earns the favor of God. Therefore, saving faith cannot be a good work that any of us are able to accomplish. So there are two things about faith we learn here. Number one, faith is not a work of man. It is not a work that we do. And number two, our faith is a work that God does on our behalf. Why do we have believing faith right now? It's not because we conjured it up. It's because God worked that out. And I offer Ephesians chapter 2, which we all know so well. It refers to this as a gift that God presents. It's not of man's works. For by grace you have been saved. Through faith. There's the means. There's the instrument. But it is not of yourselves. You didn't create this faith. It is a gift of God, not by our own works, lest any of us should what? Boast. There's that word boast again. Even with my faith, I have nothing to boast about because it's not my work. It is what God, by his grace, has accomplished when we, he raised me from my deadness in sin and presented me with this precious gift. I believe because God made it so. Boasting was important to Paul. Faith is a work accomplished by God alone. We can't boast even in that. It's not a work that entitles us to salvation. God alone is the one that caused a sinner to be born again. And he gives to those ones that are born again the ability to believe in the work of salvation that was accomplished by Jesus on the cross. Take that thought and put it back on Abraham. How did Abraham come to faith? Remember, he was a man that was rescued out of idolatry. He worshipped idols. And God came to him and said, Abraham, I've chosen you. I've chosen you to be one of my own. 
and he responds in a faith that Abraham didn't conjure up on his own, a faith that God worked in this man's heart. Before that, when God found him, this man was a pagan, an unbeliever. He worshipped idols, not just one, but many idols. And therefore, as Paul goes on to write in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, God didn't choose any of us because of our intellect, our wisdom, our cleverness, or that we figured out faith on our own. But rather, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 and 31, but by his, God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus. He's the one that did this work, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. We had none of those things. We didn't have not righteousness. We weren't sanctified. We couldn't redeem ourselves. It's God that did this in Christ. So that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Friends, we don't boast in ourselves, not even in our faith. We boast in who? We boast in the Lord. He's the one that's done this work. He's accomplished this for his purposes. We boast in the Lord who graciously saves and graciously does the work of faith for those whom God chose to save. This means that none of us can take credit for the amazing grace of our redemption. We boast in the Lord. And further, none of us, because of this, can boast in causing faith to occur in others. We now go out into a world and we share Christ And if somebody comes to faith under my preaching, praise God, but it's his work. I can't boast that I caused that person to believe. I can't even cause my children or grandchildren to believe. I can only preach Christ. The work of faith belongs to who? The Lord, and we boast in him. This has much to do with understanding our own salvation as well as our evangelism. Haven't you ever struggled with the reality that you just shared Christ with somebody and you later think, I just didn't do very well. I missed something. I should have said this. This guy asked me a question. I didn't have the answer. I do now, but I I messed up. What if that guy goes to hell because I screwed it up? The moment we do that, we are boasting in self. We're taking credit for something that does not belong to us. The heart is the Lord's territory. Faith is his work. We're only proclaimers of his truth. Our calling is simply proclaim Christ And according to 1 Peter chapter 3, we should do that well. We should come prepared to give evidence or or a testimony of the hope that lies within us. We should do it as well as we can. But the work of faith belongs to the Lord. Our boasting then is in his gracious work. Faith is the instrument. It is not the work. Second, gospel salvation is about imputed righteousness gospel salvation is about imputed righteousness not inherent righteousness not inherent righteousness and when we say inherent we mean righteousness that is within us this didn't happen because of some goodness or righteousness within us ever bit as much as it wasn't with abraham verse two and three shows that righteousness must be credited to or applied to the sinner because sinners, including Abraham, have no inherent righteousness of their own. And therefore, again, gospel salvation is about imputed righteousness. Righteousness that is credited to the sinner and a righteousness that is not inherent in the sinner. What has been imputed to the sinner is a righteousness of God's. It is not our own. This is why there is no possibility of boasting before God. We boast in the Lord. None of us have a righteousness within ourselves. It's not inherent within us to satisfy God's standard of righteousness. Rather, for any to be declared justified by God, God himself must impute or credit to our account a righteousness that is not our own. When we come to faith in Christ, this does not make us righteous because we still sin. Rather, what is covering over us is the righteousness of God's Son. And you can think of yourself as a sinner that's going to sin today and probably tomorrow. But when God looks at you, what does he see? He knows you sin. 
And sometimes if we do not repent, he's going to chasten us as a father that loves us so that we turn to his righteousness, confessing and repenting. But when God looks at me, he does not see wickedness. He sees the righteousness of his son. It's been laid over me and over you if you're a believer here this morning. It's been credited to your account. And it's not your own righteousness. It belongs to Christ. It belongs to God our Father. And this is why Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3, after he exposed all of his past history as a zealot, as a Hebrew of Hebrews, as a, a, a perfect Pharisee in the eyes of the world. He had everything going. And he said, all of that is like dung. It's like trash. It is worthless. But he said, rather, I've been found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. I've been found in Christ, not with all that past stuff. Not a righteousness of my own, derived from even the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of what? Faith. Paul believed, and God credited to his account, covered over that manure pile, the righteousness of God himself. It was so with Abraham. And this settles the matter of our own personal performance, having any contribution whatsoever to our salvation or our faith, as we saw in the previous discussion. We cannot earn the favor of God by our works, but he can be pleased with us as we're covered over or imputed the righteousness of his own. And this addresses not only the matter of how one is saved, but how a saved one is to live. A significant problem within the church has always been the temptation towards legalism and an outward show of morality where the heart remains unchanged. It was so with the Pharisees that in the eyes of the Hebrew community were the most religious, the most passionate for God, and yet Christ came onto the scene and he said of those Pharisees, you're like a cup that has been cleaned up on the outside, but you're filthy on the inside. In chapter 15 of Matthew, the Pharisees were condemned by Jesus because they held to the practice of their own righteousness and their own traditions over and against the laws that God had given to his people. They had all of these cleanliness laws. They said, these are your, Jesus said, these are your traditions, not God's. And what you've neglected is the caring of your parents the way God ordained for you to do. Because that wasn't convenient and it wasn't financially expedient. So the Pharisees set aside the commandments of God and they held to their own traditions. This is legalism. And it's a problem within the church. Because religious people, even Christian people, can get caught up in creating our own morality. And expecting others to live by that morality. Or if God says this, you go this far, we think you should go further and go this way. And we can become very rigid in keeping our own morality and expecting others to do so also. Look, if we believe that we were saved out of a righteousness that is not our own, we should not live in a righteousness that is our own. We should live by a righteousness that is of Christ, not our own. For a believer to get caught up in moralism or legalism, which are all about man's standards, is to return to the mindset that we can please God somehow with our own standards of righteousness. We could never be justified that way. How do we think we should live by it and satisfy the Lord? The doctrine of imputation is a reminder to believers that we are justified by a righteousness that is not our own. It is the righteousness of Christ and therefore we are to live by his righteousness, walking in a manner that is worthy of his character, his name, for his glory, and according to his word and not our own. And this brings us to the third and perhaps even the most problematic of Paul's declarations. Justification is by faith alone, as we've already heard. It is by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. But not by faith that is alone. 
And in that statement, if you had put it in quotations, I'm stating it this way because this is a quote from the reformers who came into conflict with the Church of Rome over the critical doctrine of justification by faith. Justification is by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. What is meant here is that sinners are justified by faith alone apart from their own works. But if we're talking about true saving faith, it will cause the believer to do the works that God created them to do in Christ Jesus. And this is what we reread in Ephesians 2 and verse 10. For we, and this follows, remember, verse 8 and 9 that we just looked at. For by grace you are saved. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. Good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. We are not saved by our works, but we are saved to work. Works that God has already prepared for those who he's chosen to save. Now there's an apparent, and I say apparent conflict with what Paul teaches about justification here in Romans and what James presents in his epistle. And we have to look at this for just a moment. So I'm going to take you back to James chapter 2. And this passage in James chapter 2 caused a good deal of concern for Martin Luther such that he referred to the epistle of James as an epistle of straw. And for some time, he questioned whether the book of James should even be part of the canon of Scripture. That's a position he later repented of. But his earlier concern came from what we read here in James chapter 2. Look at verse 14, and I'm going to read down through verse 24. James writes, James 2 verse 14, What use is it, my brethren? If someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm, be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. The demons also believe and they shudder. But you are willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless. Was not Abraham our father? This is where the discussion gets interesting because he, James, is going to use Abraham as an example here. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Quoting again exactly as Paul did. And he was called the friend of God. Verse 24, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. That last statement seems to be a contradiction with the Apostle Paul. And at first glance, we might pres presume that Paul and James they'd have a different view of faith and justification. And even today, there are widely different doctrines that are developed from thinking. There is a conflict between these two passages when in truth, Paul and James stand both in agreement. They're just dealing with two different problems in gospel ministry. Paul was dealing with Judaizers and those who believed they could earn their salvation by their own merits or their own works. James, on the other hand, was dealing with those who claimed to be Christian, but were only giving mental acknowledgement to the gospel. And this is how he writes in verse 14. He lets us know, this is why I'm addressing the problem this way. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but no works? Can that faith save him? In other words, a faith that is merely a belief is nothing more than the demons have. Even the demons believe in God. They believe in Jesus Christ. They know he was the son of God when Jesus walked the streets of Galilee. Demon-possessed people professed Jesus to be the son of God. They knew exactly who he was. And when that son of God went to the cross, they know what he accomplished, his power over sin, death, and judgment. The problem with the demons is they only had that mental acknowledgement. 
They didn't repent. They didn't put their trust in Jesus as their Savior. So when James says, what use is it, my brethren, if somebody has faith and they have no works, can that faith, that variety, that brand of faith save them? And the answer is emphatically no. It's an empty faith, nothing more than what the demons have. Genuine faith that is a work of God is going to cause a true believer to walk in truth. Saving faith causes a transformation in a way that the believer lives no longer for the desires of his own flesh, but now he lives for the glory and the purposes of God. James points out that simply believing in Jesus Christ or his gospel is nothing more than that which the demonic world understands. If someone claims to have faith that does not produce good works, they only believe as much as that demonic realm. James teaches that true faith is recognized by the good works that God has prepared for the believer to walk in. And again, we're not talking about mere morality. We're not talking about the traditions of men, those things that some people walk in to prove themselves very religious. We're not even talking about the good things that unbelievers can do to one another. The works produced by saving faith will be prescribed and described and empowered by God through his word. We know what we are to do as people of faith because we see it in the word and we obey that word. That's the word of our Lord. And therefore, we respond in obedience. Where James gets controversial is where Abraham is used as an example in verses 21 to 23, very much like Paul uses him in Romans 4. And then James concludes in verse 24, you see a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Doesn't it seem like Paul has just said the opposite? The problem we see here is that Paul seems to be saying something that is different. But in truth, as Paul will go on to write in Romans, they agree entirely on walking in truth as a result of genuine faith. Where James uses Abraham, we note that Abraham's act of obedience, and I want you to notice this, his act of obedience in his willingness to offer his son Isaac to the Lord was a mark of justification. And this is what James writes. You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. It was shown to be true. His works proved that his faith was genuine. What James does here is that he shows the work of obedience that Abraham did when he offered his son Isaac in Genesis 22. But where did God declare this man as justified? It's not there as a result of that obedient act. It was way back in Genesis 15 before Abraham had done anything. It was by his faith that he was justified. Later in Genesis 22, that faith was shown as perfected or legitimate or real by the work of obedience that Abraham accomplished for the Lord in offering his son Isaac on the altar. Because Abraham believed in the promise of God's salvation through his lineage, God declared him justified. That justification was visibly displayed by the good works that God prepared beforehand that Abraham should walk in. And he did walk in that. In Genesis 22, when his faith was tested, and God says, I want you to offer your son Isaac on the altar. That justification proved his faith was legitimate. His obedience gave proof to his profession of faith that it was genuine and that he truly was justified by God. We are justified by faith, but our justification is openly displayed by our works that come out of that faith. Paul shows that we are justified by faith alone. James shows that we are justified by a faith that is not alone, a faith that produces works. The application for us here is that simply believing in the gospel is doing nothing more than what the demons did or what the demons do now. They believe, they know the truth, and they tremble for what they know. But they are not saved or justified because they have not trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior. True faith 
will transform the sinner into a servant of God's will. This is what we often call, doctrinally speaking, as lordship salvation. When we come to faith in Christ, we are not only acknowledging Jesus Christ is my Savior, we are surrendering to his lordship over our life. Because true faith will surrender to the kingship or the reign of Christ. This does not mean that we obey Jesus in order to get saved. Rather, it says that those who are saved will surrender to Jesus Christ as their Savior and their Lord. Believers will not always obey properly. We won't always obey at all. But it does mean that God's gift of faith will accomplish the purpose for which it is designed. True believers, again, are God's workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in. We are in faith because we are created by God to be in faith. We are given this gift by God. He does the work of faith within us. And when that work is genuinely a work of God, we will do the works that God has prepared for him. Again, we don't always do it perfectly. You don't always do it all the time. But it will be the desire of a believer's heart to walk in a manner that is worthy of our Lord and Savior. Father, as we move forward in this book of doctrines in Romans, not only does it tell us how precious is the gift of faith that we've been given, but it tells us how our response is to be because we are a people of free grace. It teaches us how we are to live, a people under your word, a people under your blessing, a people that owe you our worship, our devotion, our praise, our gratitude, and our service. Help us by your spirit to learn from this book. Learn the words of your word. To learn the truth of your truth. And to be submissive to it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As we close, uh, if you would stand. Maybe grab a hymnal if you'd like. Number 59. And we'll close with number 58 in the hymnal.